You're listening to the podcast of The Branch in Ashland, Virginia. What would make someone drop what they're doing and go off in a different direction? Jesus would. In this episode, we look at the account of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus intentionally goes to the well to meet this woman, and she leaves that interaction with him completely changed and different than she was before. All right, so today we're going to start a new sermon series called The Gospel in Everyday Life. And as we start this and go into it in the coming weeks, um, we want to see how the stories that we're familiar with across the Bible and through the Gospels can help us identify the pieces of the Gospel that we're missing in our day-to-day lives. So as we hold that in our heads, I want to ask you guys a question. So how many of you think you're self-aware? Or raise your hands. Like seriously, raise your hands. How many of you think you're self-aware? Okay, so like five of us. It might defeat the, the point I'm going to make later on, but, you know, we're going to go with it. So <laughs> let me define self-awareness for us. It's knowing who you are, your values, your passions, your goals, your strengths, and your weaknesses, and understanding how others perceive you. I think that's the important part here, how others perceive you in all areas of life. Right, so that includes when you're stressed out, when you're irritated, when you're happy, when you're sad. It includes every single aspect of yourself. Um, and so it means when you're self-aware, you intimately know the impact you have on the people around you. And so for each change that kind of happens inside of you, whether that's a reaction to something that's going on, some people you're with, it means that you know how what happens inside of you plays out in the lives of the people around you. And that's regardless of whether it's on purpose or not, right? We're not talking about intentionality here. So, right, so that's, that's what self-awareness is. And what the data and the research tells us, you know, and this is kind of where the, it might die off here because not, not very many people raise their hands, but 80 to 90% of us believe we're self-aware, right? That's what research tells us, whether you raised your hand or not. So studies show, however, that only 10 to 15% of people actually are self-aware. So odds are, if you think you're self-aware, you're not. (laughs) Because the way that I've often thought about self-awareness is that it's kind of like introspection. It's kind of thinking about your internal world and, and then how that all plays out. But Asking why something happened and then getting to the bottom of it isn't self-awareness, which is often what introspection is. And that's the only thing, according to research, that separates those who are self-aware from those who aren't. It's the way we ask questions about what's going on inside of us and the situations that we're in, right? The the people who are self-aware don't ask why things happened the way that they did. They ask what can they do to change the situation? Right, do you hear the difference there? It's not asking why, it's asking what can I do about it? Or as Dr. Tasha Yurik, who's one of the lead researchers in this area says, the, the more we ask why, the more we ruminate. Instead of asking why am I stressed, ask what alterable patterns can I find in my stress? Instead of asking, why am I unhappy, perhaps ask, what upsetting situations can I avoid? 
Because I think the root of that is that we have to generate the answers as to why we're unhappy, right? Like we have to try to do some investigation work and that's not necessarily bad, but sometimes it can be difficult to identify why we're unhappy. Whereas if we look at what situations led to us being upset, we just have to reflect on what actually happened, right? We can go, this person, I don't like being with this person, or I felt hurt by this person, and that was upsetting. And you can kind of evaluate from there. And so as we hold this in our heads today, let's dive into the passage, which is John 4. It's a very, you know, commonly talked about passage, the woman at the well. And we're going to talk about my favorite part and responsibility of being a Christian, which is sharing your faith, evangelism. And if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, then maybe I'm not as self-aware as I think I am. So, <laughs> and that's just because I'm introverted there, but in many other reasons. But So let's dive in, starting with verse one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria. So the first thing that stood out to me when I had to read this passage as I was trying to prepare for today was that the line that says he had to go through Samaria. If we've heard someone talk about the story of the Good Samaritan, which even if you're not a Christian, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan is used in secular culture as well, right? But the takeaway that they often talk about is that Jews and Samaritans disliked each other. But here Jesus is saying he had to go through Samaria. And if we look at this map, right, the, we see a green line and a red line. And those were the routes that if we're going from Galilee to Judea or Jerusalem, right, that that's what most Jews took. But Jesus took this white line straight through Samaria because this whole area is basically Samaria, right? And it shows us that Jesus chose this alternate route for a reason, um, and as we keep reading on, I want us to hold that too. It's that John, the author of John, obviously, is telling us that Jesus had no other choice but to do something, meet someone out of his way that was a risk. Because there was a reason that the Jews avoided Samaria, right? Because it wasn't just because it was a longer way and they, it didn't make sense to go through Samaria. If you look here, clearly it was the obvious route to take if you're going from here to there or vice versa, right? It means that when the Jews avoided it, there was real risk and real danger and real concern about going through the area. So let's keep reading. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, and when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. All right, as we're reading this, this next kind of large chunk of the story here, um, it occurred to me that Jesus is being kind of awkward here. And I don't know if you guys have ever thought about Jesus as being awkward because it was kind of a new thought to me. And because usually if you say somebody's being awkward, that's like a negative thing. It means they're weird, it's uncomfortable, and you don't kind of want to be with them. But if Jesus is doing it and he was perfect, then maybe there is hope for some of us, right? So in order to kind of understand what I mean by he's being a little awkward, uh, let's try to reimagine this story in 21st century terms. So I want you to imagine a place that you visit often, you know, that you have to call for work often or that you have to travel to often. And imagine that there's a, like a 30-ish-year-old woman there. And you interact with her frequently, but it's not to get to know her, but she like takes your coffee order or works at a different branch of the same business or... You know, it's like you pass her on the way into your job, you ride the elevator with her, but the, the, you don't really talk to her to get to know her. It's more like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. And then you move on, right? You just have a level of familiarity with them. And one day you ask them for help with something you're doing. Kind of like Jesus is asking this woman for a drink of water. And you end up talking a bit more. Uh, and one way or another, the subject of you being a Christian comes up and you feel compelled to offer Christ. And she says she wants to take Jesus as her Lord and Savior, right? Because we see in verse 15, Sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to the well for water. And at least to me, this sounds exactly like the stereotypical way pastors and speakers often talk about evangelism, right? It's kind of a cheesy example, but it is about finding just the right time to share your faith and the opportunity that is presented to you. So when someone does want to accept Christ and become a Christian, odds are we'll end up saying, awesome, here's what you need to pray, right? That's a positive comment and then guiding them through some sort of prayer and confession, followed by, hopefully, an invitation to come to church on the following Sunday. But that's not what Jesus did, right, at all. Instead of his normal response, Jesus decided to say, go get your husband. And it'd be like commenting on the fact that, you know, you notice that she's not wearing a red wedding ring. So you point out and go say, go get your husband. And she responds with, I'm not married. Can you sit in that for a moment? That's just kind of weird, right? It's a weird interaction that Jesus had. And obviously he knew all about her because he's also God right? But if we're to kind of think about that as if we were in that position, it's really awkward. And I'm sure that woman thought it was a weird subject change. It's because like who goes from, yes, I'll receive Christ 
to go get your husband. It's just kind of weird. Because hold on to that again as we're going to continue into this story. So, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So if we're continuing our our analogy here, after you ask this woman to go get her husband, which you know she doesn't have, and then she agrees to that, right? I want you to put yourself in the shoes of her co-workers at whichever place you've imagined that she's working at. Gossip, such as the fact that she's had five husbands, is living with her sixth. I wouldn't imagine it would spread slowly through her job and to the point that I would bet that most people know that about her even if they don't really know her, right? Do you think her coworkers love and accept her for her past? Or do you think they mock and judge and laugh about her life and life choices behind her back and likely even to her face? And I'm sure you can also imagine someone like her in your own life, not just an imaginary person, a real person. And whoever it is that you've thought of during this analogy, imagine them saying to you, hey, this guy knows how many men I've slept with or knows all the stupid crap I've done that you and everyone else mock me for behind my back. And he knew without me even bringing it up. I literally just met this guy for the first time, and he knows this about me. Don't you think he's the one that can save me from myself? Because that's the story that just played out here in the text. And It's these kinds of stories, I think, (laughs) the story of the drug addict, the story of the person addicted to porn, the story of the person who cheats on their spouse, that people are most moved by, right? And are most likely to be brought to Christ through. And I think it's because we can all see ourselves in the story at some point, because the big theme is that she was ashamed of her past, and then all of a sudden, ran to the people she was afraid to be with because of her past and shamelessly admitted it, right? She ran into town. And I think it's also important to know that she was freed from being concerned about what she knows people already think about her. And I think there's still a bit more from this story because this woman runs into the town saying what we just covered, 
and in the middle of day when she's usually getting water, it's the hottest part of the day, and if the people of the town really know her, that they really know her past, and they really know that she goes in to get water in the middle of the day when they're not there so that she doesn't have to be with those people, then odds are that they're aware enough to notice that during the time she's usually getting water, the very thing that she needs for life in the ancient Near East, because there is no running water, that all of a sudden she's run to town and is sharing this news about the man that she met. So there's two options here. Either she's forgotten to get water, which again I think is unlikely in the ancient Near East, or something more important than water has preoccupied her mind, right? Because we can read in verse 28 that she left her water jar and then went into town. And I don't think the author John put that in there just for fun, you know? So let's, let's head back into the story. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Right, because it's obvious Jesus clearly had a goal in mind when he took the road less traveled. To say Jesus ended up in Samaria just by a gut feeling or on a whim, I think is one it's just not accurate because Jesus is saying he had to. And it also misses the point because he told us he had to be there and as we're reading this, I think it's obvious he had to be there for this woman, right? In the heat of the day when he was probably hungry, when he was tired, and he had no way to get food outside of his town because the disciples ditched him. And he clearly did not choose to be there for his benefit. It was for the woman. Obviously, duh. Yes, but also no, right? Because it was also for himself and for his father. You see, the food that he required when he was tired from a long journey, clearly had things to do and places to be was to go be with someone in need, right? He tells his disciples, as he tells them often, his food and his sustenance, the things that sustain him, things greater than literal food, is to do the will of his father. And so he wanted to complete the work laid out for him. And it's like if we picked up like a third shift across town after working a double is I think kind of the analogy here of Jesus stopping along his route to go out of his way in the middle of the day to go talk to this woman. Because he witnessed to this woman not by sharing his story explicitly, as we oftentimes think about evangelism, and honestly he hadn't been crucified yet, so there wasn't all that much there to share in the way we would typically think about it, but by being present to her at the place in which she was most vulnerable and he was most tired. All right, so we're going to go in this last section of the passage today. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Right. Stories are compelling. If that weren't the case, movies, books, podcasts, and all the other artistic endeavors would not be as popular as they are today. And I think we can all agree they're fairly popular. And so this woman telling the town that she lived in, shamelessly admitting the things she was most ashamed of, was so profoundly moving that it got people to literally go to Christ. They left the town also in the middle of the day, they stopped what they were doing to walk out of the town to go meet Christ. And so the point of this sermon, and I think this passage, isn't to have you leave here and think, wow, I need to share my testimony more, and I need to share my faith more. Well, that's not a bad thing, and I think we could all do, do well by doing that more often, right? My question to you is this. Do you know what your faith has freed you from? And what keeps you sitting in those things you're supposed to be freed from? Still ashamed. Because we all know the power of stories. My encouragement to you today isn't to go share your faith and be like this woman. Well, it's good, sure, right? It's, do you know your faith well enough? Because faith in Christ is freedom from your past. This woman dropped one of the three things required for life food, shelter, and water as a response to knowing her Savior and knowing that she was saved despite what she had been done, what she had done, and who she is, right? And so do you know the power of the gospel in your life such that when an opportunity shows itself to share the love of Christ, that you would naturally and without thinking reactively give up the things that you find most near and dear to you? the requirements of your life as a spontaneous reaction to being able to share Christ with others. Would you give up your most prized possessions, the love of your spouse, your home, your food, your water in order to do so? And if that's not what you're willing to give up in the name of Christ, I don't want you to be ashamed or feel like you failed. That's not the goal here to guilt trip you. I'm telling you so great is the love of God that that reaction that this woman had is the natural byproduct of knowing Christ, right? It's not go out and set your life in order so that when there's a sign and, a, and the right moment is presented to you, you can weigh your options and then make the right decision to then share your faith. It's, that, that's missing the point, right? And so if I'm describing where you are and it's a, it's a sign that it's not that you're not sharing enough, but I think that you're missing out on the love of Christ in your own life. Because it's worth more than all of the things of this world. That's what this story is about. It's not weighing options out and making sure you choose the right thing. She was given what she truly needed, Christ, and the result was freely giving of herself to others. And so I don't know the story of everyone's life here, right? I don't know the vulnerable place that Christ meets you in. Um, 
but I do know where he meets me and has met me and continues to meet me. And if I'm to live as Christ did, I think it means I have to be aware of myself too and my own past and the story that I was freed from just like this woman. It's not the same past, but similar to this woman, right? <laughs> and so, and I, I'll be honest, I really don't like sharing this about myself because and honestly, we go back to the why. I could give you a thousand reasons why I don't like sharing this. Um, but I've had struggles with mental health my whole life as far back as I can possibly remember, right? I've tried just about every single antidepressant under the sun between middle school and high school. I had freaking panic attacks. I was diagnosed with ADHD in high school. I've struggled with my sleep. I've struggled with wanting to live and I struggle and I continue to struggle. I'm doing a whole lot better now, so I'm not asking you to have pity on me or to worry too deeply about me. Um, but the reason I'm telling you this is because I am not an exemption from the moral of the story either, just how you all aren't. Because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. And I do not say that lightly. I've had more dark nights of the soul than I care to remember. And I didn't get through it with having the right therapist or the right person say, hey, snap out of it. God didn't really take away my depression. I wish he would. He hasn't take, rewired my brain for my ADHD. I still forget things the moment I walk out of the room and get distracted by something else in front of me and have to walk back to the room to remember what I was doing. You can ask my wife, it drives her nuts, right? Because God became present to me in my story. Because all I wanted to know was, why am I like this? Why in middle school and high school does it seem like I'm the only one struggling? Why am I so scattered and forgetful and unmotivated? Why can't I be like everyone else? Why do I feel so alone? Because the Bible does a decent job of explaining the whys to my question, but that's not really the hope of the gospel, is it? just telling us what's already happening, right? The hope is what God gives me. The gospel story is a what God is going to do, what he has done, what he will do, and what he always will do. It explains the why by telling us the what. So your story is important too. It may hurt to think about, it may be painful to share, and rather than ask yourself why you can't share, why you don't share, I want you to ask yourself this, this next time. What could actually go wrong? And in what could go wrong, do you lose anything that you actually need that you don't already have in Christ? Because your words have power. It was words that brought life into this world. It was words that created order out of chaos back in Genesis, right? Our command is to go out and make disciples. And when was the last time anyone ever met somebody that was brought to Christ by someone who didn't share or didn't share their story, right? It is those stories that compel people to walk out of town in the noonday heat to go meet Christ, And sharing our stories ought to be the thing that is the natural outpouring of the work done in us by God himself. That is what it means to be a Christian. And you see it here, that she heard Christ. 
knew she was loved, and the first thing she knew to do was run into town and tell somebody about it. So if we're worried about how others review us if they know our past, we have to remember that we are not ourselves if we are to call ourselves Christians. We are Christ's. We are our Father's. Saved and set apart. If people look at our lives and don't let anyone else know what we've been saved of and saved from, how are they going to be able to see Christ? No one can see God's fingerprints in our lives if we never share the things he met us in. Because otherwise, it looks like we're just a bunch of good moral people doing good moral things. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is not rejecting the life God has for us by withholding ourselves from others because our lives are not ours to decide what to do with. Our lives are held safe and secure in Christ. So maybe we should listen to the one who holds us secure. So as we're closing out here, this is how we leave here differently, holding these things in our head right? Ask yourself what you're still withholding from God and ask God to use it for his purposes because we are not our own, we are his. Our past is God's and to cling to it as an identity in shame is to identify with ourselves and not with Christ. We can pray for eyes to see ourselves more accurately and the impact we have and pray for self-awareness right, to see the true impact we have on others. We can ask God to show us the ways in which we can change someone's life by sharing Christ's work in our own lives unhindered. And we can ask for people's feedback about our own self-awareness from those closest to us, right, which I'm going to be honest with you, you're probably not going to like the answer. But if we're to be more like Christ, I think we have an obligation to consider how we come across to others and to adapt that part of ourselves that is not in line with Christ to be more like what God calls us to. Because this is everyday life. This woman had a story to share and so do we. Will you bow your heads with me as I pray? Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and the work that he did on the cross. We thank you for the stories that you have given us to share And would these words today be a spark and encouragement to each of us gathered here? Would you remind us that our past has been claimed by you? And would you let us use that past to bring others to Christ? And we give you praise and honor today, God. Amen. What is it that God has met you in? And how has he changed you? Is there something that you're still withholding from God? Take some time this week to ask yourself these questions and pray that God might give you the strength and the courage to bring whatever it is that you might be holding back to Him. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thebranchashland at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, give us a review, and share with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. See you next time.